You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Tuesday, January 19th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Dr. Michael McCormick and Alpine Allergy and Asthma Associates, Incorporated. Reminding listeners that allergy testing and desensitization can alleviate seasonal suffering. Specializing in diagnosis of asthma and allergies for adults and children with locations in Grass Valley and Auburn. AlpineAllergyAndAsthma.com And Circle's Wild and Scenic Film Festival, online January 14th through the 24th. A virtual experience this year with over 100 environmental and adventure films, filmmakers, activists, workshops, and more. WildAndScenicFilmFestival.org Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, we have this week's water news with hydrogeologist Steve Baker, Paul Emery speaks with Jess Swingonski, Wild and Scenic Film Festival director, about this year's festival. NPR reports that there's a new coronavirus vaccine from China. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you Educationally Speaking, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Three self-declared members of right-wing paramilitary groups are facing conspiracy charges in connection with the storming of the U.S. Capitol. As NPR's Ryan Lucas reports, all three individuals are now in federal custody. The three defendants, Thomas Caldwell, Donovan Crowell, and Jessica Watkins, face a range of charges, including conspiracy, destruction of government property, and obstruction of an official proceeding. An affidavit filed in federal court says the trio conspired together to storm the Capitol to try to block Congress's tallying of Joe Biden's electoral victory. The affidavit says Caldwell holds a leadership role in the Oath Keepers paramilitary group, which Carlin Watkins also allegedly belonged to. The defendants planned their activities in Washington, D.C. together, according to Facebook messages cited in the court papers. That includes one to Caldwell on the day of the Capitol riot that read, quote, All members are in the tunnels under Capitol. Seal them in. Turn on gas. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Preparations are continuing in Washington for tomorrow's inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, an inauguration that will be unlike any other in history, with not only a global pandemic and the resulting economic fallout to contend with, but also heightened security fears following the riot at the U.S. Capitol earlier this month by pro-Trump extremists that left five people dead, including a Capitol police officer. Biden had planned to take a train from his home state of Delaware, but arrived by plane due to security concerns. Some 25,000 National Guard troops are in Washington to ensure a smooth transition of power. The Senate today began holding confirmation hearings for some of President-elect Biden's cabinet nominees. Among them is his choice to lead the Department of Homeland Security. Alejandro Mayorkas, NPR's Brian Naylor, has that story. If he's confirmed, Alejandro Mayorkas will face a range of challenges at DHS, from immigration to domestic extremists. He was asked if the Biden administration would dismantle any of the border wall erected by the Trump administration. It's not a monolithic challenge, uh, the border. Uh, The border is is varied um, depending on the geography, depending on the specific venue, and depending on on the conduct uh, of individuals uh, around it. 
Prospects for a quick confirmation for Mayorkas disappeared when Republican Senator Josh Hawley said he would object to fast-tracking the nomination because of the next president's plans for immigration policy. Biden is expected to unveil his proposal soon after his inauguration. Brian Naylor, NPR News. Almost a year to the day since the first coronavirus case was diagnosed in the U.S., the death toll from COVID-19 surged past another milestone today, topping 400,000. The death toll for far higher than that of any other nation. Just one more grim code to Donald Trump's presidency, which ends tomorrow with the swearing-in of President-elect Biden. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street. The Dow was up 116 points. The Nasdaq rose 198 points. This is NPR. Three self-described militia members have been arrested in Ohio and Virginia on federal charges in connection with a mob attack on the U.S. Capitol this month. Federal documents alleging the Virginia man who goes by the name Commander Tom and also said he wanted to next storm Ohio's Capitol. Authorities say the man identified as 65-year-old Edward Conwell of Clark County, Virginia, is believed to have a leadership role in a group known as the Oath Keepers. The FBI described the organization as a paramilitary group that believes in a shadow conspiracy to strip Americans of their rights. As capital cities around the U.S. prepare for potential violence on Inauguration Day, a small group of mothers in Lincoln, Nebraska, set up a safety hotline and ride-sharing program. Emily Chen Newton reports it's for children who go to school near the state capitol building. Four elementary and middle schools are within walking distance of the Nebraska Capitol. So with children potentially walking home amid the presence of armed citizens or the National Guard, a grassroots community group set up an emergency hotline for students needing safe rides home on Inauguration Day. Maji Miller-Jenkins says the idea came from the mothers in their group. There's three of us that are mothers. So when we were thinking about it, we thought about what our children would think about and what our children's environments would be like. She feels the effort is especially urgent given that the state has not prohibited people from carrying firearms on Capitol grounds. For NPR News, I'm Emily Chen Newton in Nebraska. Critical features prices moved higher amid hopes further coronavirus stimulus by the incoming Biden administration will boost the economy. Oil rose 62 cents a barrel to close at 52.98 a barrel. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, tonight will be clear with a low around 38. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 60 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 37. In Sacramento tonight, skies will be clear with a low around 38. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 63 and clear skies overnight with a low around 37. In the Truckee region tonight, there will be areas of blowing dust before 7 p.m., then mostly clear skies with a low around 17. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 47, and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 21. And in Angels Camp tonight, skies will be clear with a low around 40. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 63, and a low around 39 with mostly clear skies. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, welcome to KVMR, Steve. Uh, Glad to be back. Well, we're certainly enjoying our summer weather (laughs) this past week. It's been really nice, and and probably it will continue for a a little while. 
what's happening with our weather anyway? Well, I, I know one thing. I'm I'm enjoying every minute of it, although it's very uncharacteristic of winters up here in, in the Nevada County. Uh, this, this warm and dry weather, believe it or not, it's resulted at this point in the state snowpack dropping below 50% on the average, you know, for this date. So it's dropped a lot, and a lot of the state is running really around 30% of average snowpack. So it's quite low because we're just not getting getting the rain and snow. Uh, the wildfire risks uh, to Southern California are back up there again because they're they're pretty much high and dry, and we are extremely lucky, fortunate that up here in Northern California, we are actually in much much better condition as far as wildfires go. The the experts have described this weather circumstance as kind of peculiar in some ways because because it's a north south mass of air kind of runs north south okay like from the north pole to the south pole and this mass is sitting on top of the california area but it's this mass is moving west ever so slowly and uh, we normally have masses of air these large bags of air that move from west to east and that's just hasn't been happening this winter so far so what has transpired of course is we have had virtually no precipitation but we're having a lot of high winds those are, those are the things we're experiencing as a result of that. But all this is supposed to be changing within the next five to seven days. The warm weather system, this, this air mass, it's slowly moving off to the ocean. It's going west. And that's making room for the northern, the air, the cold northern air uh, come, to come down from the Arctic. And so um, that will be bringing a lot of rain to our area and even low snow levels by the end of January. This is what I've, I've heard. Well, Steve, uh, I suppose this uh, nice weather comes at a cost when uh, addressing the many water issues in California. Well, it does. But, I, you know, I think it motivates our local and state leaders uh, in recognizing that these intermittent warm, dry spells we have had in wintertime are becoming really a lot more the norm with each passing year. So we need to make significant changes. So if you look at groundwater, I mean, managing the Central Valley groundwater aquifers in particular— uh, the the aquifer recharge infrastructures, the processes, all these things are really important to really get done. And uh, they are moving on that more quickly. We, we don't have any time to waste here. The downside of failure in, in maintaining our water resources and groundwater in particular are big. That California will be hitting a big way. So we, we need to manage our water better. And uh, there's no more waiting. There's no more slowing down. We need to get the job done. And as far as surface water reservoirs go, let's see if, uh, if they'll continue to satisfy the water demands of California. But we have to recognize that as we're just waiting and seeing on that, we need to recognize that alternative water storage approaches take a lot of time and money to actually put together and do. And so we can't wait too long in making those decisions, and they have to be the right decisions for the right reasons. So uh, it's really important to be realistic uh, with our future water resources. Well, how can uh, we respond up here in the foothills with our communities? Be to the actual water water resource issues, you know, the things that are happening both directly and indirectly. they present themselves every year. Pay attention to these things. This year so far, it's a warm, it's a low rainfall kind of winter. And that carries with it the responsibility for each of us to take proactive and even immediate actions 
to, to, in some fashion. We need to think about those things from now and, and then prepare ourselves accordingly. We, we all have to reflect on what our water needs really are and how we will change our behavior. Think and start acting on those things from now because changes in the delivery of water means changes in our lifestyles when they're dramatic. And these, these changes are becoming more dramatic as we go. We have certainly made adjustments in our lives because of the pandemic. So that tells me that, by golly, we can do this. Because I think the adjustments for the water will be probably equal, maybe a little less, but probably equal to what we've done in our uh, in responding to p- the pandemic. So it's the same drive uh, that we'll be using to adapt to these new water conditions here in California. And uh, they apply as well to our lo- locale up here in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. You know, Steve, as a footnote, um, uh, there's a uh, relatively small area in Southern California that's having their power turned off because of fire danger. I heard that the winds are up. It's been dry. And, uh, and you know, it's, a, it's just a flash uh, memory of what summers are like, except it's happening now in January. Yeah, that's 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 pretty shocking. Yeah. Yeah. So we it's becoming more of a, a 12 month a year situation somewhere in California. And we may be visited with that at some point, even here. So we have to be careful, and we have to have contingencies, which we are all a part of. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with our water guy, Steve Baker, on KVMR. Email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. I'm speaking with Jess Swigonski. She's festival director of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, which is happening in Nevada City and our both of our towns, actually. Welcome to KVMR. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. I'm excited to chat with you. Jess, uh, for people that don't know anything about the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so Wild and Scenic Film Festival is in its 19th year this year, and we are a film festival that's actually produced by the South Yuba River Citizens League, or CIRCLE, and we show environmental and adventure documentaries, Um, and in addition to the films, we have lots of other programming like workshops, an art exhibition, an enviro fair, and lots of other free programming as well, Um, but you know, our bread and butter are the films, and we, we show um, a wonderful assortment of films. We have a little over 100 this year. And you also put together a package of these films, and it goes all over the country in Europe, too, I believe. Yeah, we have a whole on-tour program. So after the film festival ends in January, we kick off um, a, a nationwide tour, like you said, and we partner with other organizations to host Wild and Scenic in their towns. Now, of course, this is a different year than we've ever experienced before. Thank goodness we hopefully won't experience it again. But the festival is going to be a virtual festival this year. Uh, Tell us about some of the things that are going to be happening and how it's going to work. Yeah, yeah. This year looks quite different. Like you said, typically we kind of take over Nevada City and Grass Valley and we're in, you know, a dozen different venues. Uh, But for this year, for the virtual festival, we really tried to retain as much of the, the typical programming elements that we normally include 
in the festival. So what we've done is create um, film sessions um, that one can view from the comfort and safety of their own home. So you buy a ticket or you buy a pass and you can watch these film sessions at your leisure over the course of the entire film festival. We kicked off January 14th and we run all the way through the 24th. So we still have, what is that, six more days here that you can enjoy some films. And there are around 30 different film sessions that folks can view. And each of those film sessions are made up of um, a number of different films. They could be a program of short films or a feature with some shorts. Um, and so we group them together uh, to create that sort of theatrical experience that you would get at the at the in-person film festival. So we've got all the films online. In addition to the films, like I mentioned earlier, um, we tried to translate the other programmatic elements like the art exhibition and workshops into the online space as well. So there's lots of free programming, too. Now, Circle is, uh, of course, a local organization, and you're going to be uh, presenting some programs specifically for the for our own community, such as a cannabis uh, workshop coming up and other things, too. Tell us about these. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, there are a couple workshops coming up, as well as um, a whole film session that is dedicated to local issues. So that film session is called Local Love and it's got a, an amazing number of short films from local filmmakers and regional filmmakers covering local topics like the Bear River and the proposed reopening of the, the Idaho Maryland mine is a topic of a film and also a workshop like you mentioned that'll be happening Saturday. Um, January 23rd. Um, and again, that workshop is free in addition to the cannabis workshop, like you mentioned, which is also free. Um, so yeah, we do we do like to have to highlight local issues and local experts and filmmakers in the festival as well. Now, when people buy a ticket for this, do they generally buy a ticket for the entire festival or or how will that work? Yeah, there's lots of different options depending on how many film sessions you want to check out, what your budget is, how much time you have. So we've got anything from a single session ticket. So similar to the in-person event, you could buy a ticket for like the Sunday night, Sunday afternoon session, for example. Um, for this year, you can buy a single session ticket and that'll get you access to one session. Um, and since they're on demand... Um, you know, they're not tied to a certain date and time. That one ticket will get you access to that film session whenever you decide you'd like to watch it. Um, so there's the individual tickets, but then there's also different pass levels. So you can get a five pack, which is essentially five tickets. You could get a 10 pack, which, you know, essentially is 10, or you could get different levels of the festival pass, which will get you um, greater numbers of, of tickets. So there's different levels depending on, on, you know, how many films you want to check out. Now, is this a system that you're using this year something you might continue in the future in some manner? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to commit to anything that we haven't decided on quite yet, but I will say that, you know, we have been seeing a, a trend in other film festivals who are, you know, adopting some sort of virtual element to their in-person events. And I will say, you know, in 2022, hopefully we will be able to be fully in-person again. You know, that is the roots of the film festival. It's really, we want to galvanize environmental activism through the film festival. And one way to do that is really 
you know, creating that buzz and energy in town and being in person, but there are some really great bonuses to having the virtual events, such as, you know, we can reach beyond um, the region for folks who, who may have a barrier to entry, whether that's due to price or location, you know, we can reach out kind of beyond the, the region, um, which is pretty neat and hopefully create some access for folks who maybe haven't been able to check out the film festival before. I know my parents are watching from their homes in Pennsylvania, which is pretty cool. You know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, this this whole uh, COVID thing has been a disaster for many businesses and for live performances. But uh, Grass Valley, for example, have closed off Mill Street. And mm -hmm. that is becoming so popular. Now they're talking about maybe doing that permanently. So you never know. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Yeah, it just brings people together in uh, such a wonderful way. One more time, can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about this? Yeah, so the best way to find out more would be just to head over onto our website, wildandscenicfilmfestival.org. Um, if you're more familiar with Circle, you can find us through yubariver.org, Y-U-B-A river.org, and there's the sites linked together. And then there's also the the main site where the virtual festival is happening on, um, which is wsff.eventive.org so we're all over the place you can get get to the virtual fest any of those three ways <laughs> Jess uh, thank you so much for speaking with KVMR yeah thank you for having me on really appreciate it and hope hope your listeners can come check out the virtual fest we still have a few more days left I've been speaking with Jess Swigonski. She is the festival director of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival currently going on in Nevada City. Many countries around the world are betting on a vaccine from China to help them stop the coronavirus. On Sunday, for example, Brazil gave emergency use authorization to this vaccine made by the Chinese pharmaceutical company Sinovac. Countries are embracing the Chinese vaccine despite conflicting reports about how well it works. NPR health correspondent Maria Godoy reports. Nearly two weeks ago, researchers running a late-stage trial for Sinovac's vaccine in Brazil announced it was 78% effective against COVID, which sounds pretty good. But then last week, they revised those numbers, saying the vaccine prevented disease only about 50% of the time. So what's the truth? Natalie Dean, a biostatistician at the University of Florida, says it all depends on how you define efficacy. So when we talk about vaccine efficacy, often we think about a single number, but actually there are a lot of different types of efficacy, and you can think about it as a spectrum. Dean says vaccines typically work best at preventing severe disease. That's what the Brazil trial found. 78% of the time, the Sinovac vaccine protected people against moderate or severe disease or even mild disease that needed some medical assistance. But when the researchers included what they called very mild symptoms that needed no medical attention, the vaccine's effectiveness dropped to 50%. As we tend to include milder and milder cases, it's natural to see a bit of a drop in vaccine efficacy. Sinovac is conducting trials in various countries, and they haven't released much of the data. John Moore, a vaccine researcher with Weill Cornell Medicine, says that's made it hard for outside scientists to know exactly what's going on. It's science by press release. The Chinese are being, well, characteristically less, less than transparent. Even so, from the data that is available, Moore says it's clear that the Sinovac vaccine is less effective than those from Moderna and Pfizer. 
Those vaccines on the whole protect against disease around 95% of the time. Moore says that's not surprising because previous data had showed that the vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer, both of which use a new technology called mRNA, triggered a stronger immune response than the Sinovac vaccine. Most people in the field believe that the antibody response is the correlate of protection and that, you know, the strength of the antibody responses matters. Natalie Dean says the less effective a vaccine is at preventing disease, the harder it is to pinpoint its efficacy. When the vaccine is closer to 50, 60 percent, that range of uncertainty can be a lot bigger. That may help explain another head scratcher. Different clinical trials in different countries have reported starkly different efficacy rates for the Sinovac vaccine, from 50% in Brazil to 65% in Indonesia to a stunning 91% in a smaller study in Turkey. You need a lot more data to distinguish between different levels of efficacy. So it might also just be kind of statistical noise to a degree. But even if the Sinovac vaccine is only around 50% protective, that's still substantial. It's better than the flu vaccine some years, and it does meet the minimum threshold for emergency use authorization set by the World Health Organization. That's not nothing. It's much better than nothing. Dr. Denise Garrett is an epidemiologist with the Sabin Vaccine Institute in Washington, D.C. She says the data show the Sinovac vaccine protects against severe cases of COVID, and that could have a big impact in places like her native Brazil. The healthcare in Brazil is about to collapse in many cities. The situation is very critical, and having a vaccine that will prevent people from being hospitalized, that will be, that'll be a great impact for us. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. There's an old saying in the investing world, buy the rumor and sell the news. This, like all the other quips in the world of stocks, is by no means a precursor to what will happen, only what might happen. This saying refers to the possibility that a stock will rise in price as a rumor hits the mill, only to fall when the rumor becomes fact. For example, imagine a smartphone manufacturer who is rumored to have a blowout quarter in the upcoming earnings season. The stock might increase as the rumor makes its way around Wall Street and in public media. When the company posts earnings, however, it is indeed a blowout quarter, like projected, but surprising many an investor, the stock sells off on the news. This would be a classic example of buy the rumor, sell the news. It doesn't always happen when good news is sold off, but it has happened more often than one would think. We could take this occurrence and extrapolate it to the general market. The question now becomes, can the current market rally, which has brought it above 30,000 on the Dow for the first time ever, can it continue to set even higher highs? It's no surprise the market's new high flies in the face of current economic conditions. Indeed, the economy, because of the COVID shutdowns, has seldom been in worse shape. Meanwhile, since the third week of March, the markets have recorded historic gains to rise from a Dow low of 18,213 to over 30,000. The markets obviously were not looking at what was, because what was was an economy shuttered by COVID. Instead, it could be argued the market's meteoric rise was because investors were likely looking at what will be. What the market was looking forward to was a vaccine, humongous Federal Reserve spending, and an eventual reopening of the world's economies. From week to week and from month to month, since the current environment was so bad, the hopes of a world reopening and what 
that would bring was enough to push the markets ever higher. It's almost as if times were so bleak, the imagination of investors kept the registers ringing on Wall Street and therefore kept the stock market rising. Fast forward to today, and we could be looking at an extremely overstretched market, which some argue is historically overbought on many levels. At this time, it might be time to ask what more good news could come out. The vaccine is here, and the Fed has spent trillions. Reopening is happening, and the vaccine is making its way around the globe. It's only a matter of time before the world resumes at least some sense of normalcy. That said, as of now, I can only see one more piece of good news in our future, and the rumor of that is already out. One more round of stimulus from the Biden administration is in the works, and we already know it is. What this means, at least to this analyst, is that the good news possibly all of it, is already baked into the proverbial cake. The market could be said to be as high as the good news warrants and has nothing to look forward to from here on in. In my opinion, with the market that has risen close to 60% off its March lows in a mere nine months, it's time for caution. If portfolios reflect market gains, then profits could be substantial, and protecting such profits should now be the order of the day. After all, it's better to miss a market top than ride a market back down in a severe correction. A perfect buy the rumor and sell the news event may be setting up with the announcement of the final stimulus program from Washington. When they announce it, will the market drop? That said, another saying comes to mind right now, and that saying goes something like this, nobody ever went broke taking a profit. Ignore at your own peril. My name is Mark Cunaberti. This has been another edition of Money Matters. Remember, this is not meant as investment advice. Consult a qualified financial professional before making any investment decisions. Indices mentioned cannot be invested into directly. And the newscast reflects my opinions only and not the opinions of the station, its staff, management, or underwriters. I hold California Insurance License OL34249. And I'm a Medicare-approved agent in the state of California. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. That's our newscast for this evening. Coming up next, we bring you Educationally Speaking and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions and the KVMR News Team, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.